Welcome to the Living the Dream podcast with Curveball. If you believe, you can achieve. Welcome to the Living the Dream with Curveball podcast, a show where I interview guests that teach, motivate, and inspire. Today, I am joined by mindset juggernaut, spiritual warrior, best-selling author, Joseph Holmes. We're going to be talking to him today about his life and about how he had interventions from guardian angels. We've all heard of guardian angels. Well, Joseph was visited by him, and he's going to be talking about all the things that led up to that and how he's doing now and anything else he wants to talk about. Joseph, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, welcome, Curtis. Thank you for having me. Why don't you start off by telling everybody a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm a, uh, uh, I'm a survivor of uh, childhood, uh, physical, emotional, sexual abuse. Uh, I'm a cancer survivor. And I'm a, a PTSD, uh, totally disabled uh, combat veteran, uh, Vietnam. And uh, so, you know, as I grew up, I know how to process all this trauma that was happening to me. And, and by the way, I was homeless also at 19. My father had kicked me out of the house um, yeah, for no good reason, just you know, I think he wanted the house empty. Um, so uh, anyway, uh, not uh, in course, in, well, not a course, but in my family. Uh, you know, if you were somebody that, uh, you know, was weak and couldn't handle your problems. So I never processed uh, any of this trauma. And in 1980. Three, my father died. Uh, two years later, my mother died. Uh, I had a new business. Um, I had a young family. And so, you know, just one of those things is considered a major life event in, uh, in a person's life. And I was dealing with them, plus my past trauma, dealing with all this stress all at the same time, trying to handle it myself. And in 1991, I just had a complete nervous breakdown. And I, fortunate enough, I live in the country on five acres. So for the next year, year and a half, all I could do was uh, work the land. That was my therapy. And, uh, and of course, having uh, two young children and, and a, you know, an understanding spouse, I was able to kind of get back on the road of recovery. And that's when my spiritual visions really started to happen. Uh, actually, it started, you know, the, the, um, the uh, nervous breakdown happened in 1991. In 1988, I actually had my first, um, I would say, vision. Uh, I, uh, this, some of your listeners may know uh, of the Reverend John Lawrence. Uh, he was in his 90s at the time, and he invited me over to his home and um, on a Sunday. 
So I never uh, uh, been to his home and I didn't know him that well. So I wanted to, to get to know him uh, better. So I accepted his invitation, I went over and uh, he wanted to uh, meditate together. So we had this uh, coffee table in between us and uh, we sat down, you know, facing each other and we began meditating. And during the course of the meditation, uh, John's foot uh, kicked the, one of the legs of the coffee table. And I, I thought, well, you know, I don't want to interrupt the meditation, but he is, you know, in his 90s. I better make sure he's okay. So I just kind of opened my eyes. His eye, you know, like uh, in the movies when somebody sees a ghost, you know, their eyes get, that, that's what he looked like. His eyes were wide open and he was staring above my head. And then uh, he collected himself and he closed his eyes and we finished the meditations. And uh, we had some refreshments and we talked a little bit. And then when it was time to go, he excused himself and he went and he brought um, a crucifix out. And you know, I'm not a religious person, I am spiritual. Um, but he gave me this crucifix uh, and he said, I want you to have this. This was what I saw hovering above your head. And I didn't know what to make of it, you know, crucifix, but you know, it was, it was nice that he saw that above my head and he had a present that he gave me anyway. And uh, so I got in the car and I closed the door like you normally close a car door. But when I closed it, I heard this bam. And Curtis, the, the, the a vehicle was encased in the bubble of white light. And it felt like we were three feet off the ground. And I cannot tell you how I got home. But when I got home, I got out of the car and then I myself was encased in the bubble of white light. And I, my wife had a lunch waiting for me and I sat down to eat and I took a forkful of food and I brought it to my mouth and I couldn't get it through the bubble of white light. The vibration between the food and the white light was so different that I couldn't penetrate the bubble. So for a week, I could not eat any solid food. I could only take freshly made juices that had to be freshly made. And I could only take them through a straw at the very end of my mouth. Why? I don't know. <laughs> but that's, that's the only way I could uh, take nourishment. And that, that bubble uh, dissipated after about a week. So over the course of five to seven days, it just gradually dissipated. And so that was my first experience, actually seeing, um, you know, the other side. And... Um, so after the, the problem with being in those states is that when you come out of them, you have to deal with the mundane world. And so in my case, I went into a depression and I swore, you know, I didn't want to do this. I didn't want to, you know, go into these states and then come out and be depressed for a month or so. So um, I kind of just forgot about it. And then I had the nervous breakdown in 91 and then I you know just 
you know, did my self-therapy working the land out here for about a year and a half. And then um, there was there was this one week workshop that my wife encouraged me to take. So I decided I'd take it and um, it was for one week and it started on a Saturday. And then that coming Wednesday, we had a breathwork session for your listeners who may not know. Breathwork is where you just, you know, for a certain time you do this very deep breathing, continuous deep breathing. Anyway, we started the, the breathwork uh, in the evening, uh, about 12 of us in the room lying on our backs and um, the lights were out. And toward the end of the session, well, sometime during the session, I saw these pair of eyes hovering above me. And all I, all I could see, Curtis, were the outline of the eyes. So I thought perhaps they were my mother who had you know, passed away a few years earlier, but I couldn't tell for sure. But anyway, uh, they, they just stayed there above me, uh, hovering above me. And then when the facilitator announced that, he made an announcement saying that uh, he was gonna turn on the lights in 10 minutes. So start preparing yourself, you know, bringing, you know, calming down your breathing and so, so forth. Well, when he announced that the eyes expanded and it was Mother Mary. And she bathed me in beams of golden white light for those 10 minutes. And then when the session ended, she disappeared. And again, I didn't know what to make of it because I wasn't a religious person. But, you know, I wasn't scared. I, I mean, it felt good and it was nice to see Mother Mary uh, apparently blessing me. So two nights later, now he didn't know why she did that, but two nights later, I found that out. Two nights later, during the, the workshop, I had an out-of-body experience. And I went into, for lack of a better word, these light regions. And we were just traveling and traveling. I had a guide with me and we were just traveling. And we came to this light in the distance which I thought we were heading toward. And the guide stopped me and he said, you can't go there. And I said, why not? I want to. He said, no. He said, you'll combust if you go there. You, you can't handle that energy. Well, at the time, I didn't know what it was. Later, I was told that was the light of Mary Magdalene. Well, anyway, I came back into my body. And for the next five solid months, I was in this state. Uh, I was in these light regions. And, you know, I, we don't, a lot of times when we experience these things, we don't have the syntax to describe them to people. And so at that time, I was just calling it the light regions. But it made the white light, that bubble white light, that white light that I had experienced earlier, that made the white light just look like kindergarten stuff. I mean, these light regions were just undescribable. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of a quiet person and a laid back person. But when I was in these light regions, I'd be in the supermarket 
and just out of nowhere with no warning, I just start giggling and laughing. People would stop and look at me, but I had no control over it. Just this joy. I was just in this state of pure bliss. And uh, so I described it to a Catholic one time, a devoted Catholic, and he, he said, oh, yeah, you were in a state of rapture. And so I thought, well, that's a good term to use for it, rapture. Right. And uh, so I stayed in those uh, light regions, that state of rapture for five solid months. I couldn't work. I mean, I was just giddy, you know, full of joy and bliss. I mean, 24-7. And, um, but then eventually, well, uh, an, an event occurred that knocked me out of the light regions, which was pretty traumatic for me. And, uh, and I went into a deep depression and I swore off, I swore off breath work. <laughs> I said the depression, the states of depression were not worth it. <laughs> and um, anyway, I, uh, that was uh, like in 93 and in, in 20, uh, in 20, 20, uh, in 2005, I heard that there was going to, so between that time and 2005, I did no more breathwork. And, and then I heard that they were going to have a breathwork workshop at the Mission San Luis Rey in Oceanside, California. That's one of the 21 original California missions. And it's known to have a close association with Mother Mary. So I thought, well, you know, if I take this workshop, maybe I'll have a vision of Mary. So I decided to take it. And I was teaching class and I announced the workshop started on Saturday. And on Friday evening, I announced to the class that uh, there wouldn't be any uh, classes tomorrow, Saturday, because I was taking a workshop. That's all I said. So everybody was gone, I, was, I thought, and I was locking up. And while I was locking up, one of the parents came up to me and they asked me why I was taking this workshop. And Curtis, without thinking, just out of my mouth came, oh, to meet Mary Magdalene. It's, so I'm driving home and I remember thinking on the way home, thinking, Mary Magdalene, I don't have any interest in her. I, I, I'm going there hopefully to have a, another vision of Mother Mary. So I'm thinking, why did it? Why did that come out of my mouth? Well, the next day, Saturday, it's uh, 8 a.m. and the workshop starting, and the facilitator says, "Okay, we're going to do some breath work." And right away, my ego, right, right away, my ego is telling me, "No, no, this is not going to work. If I'm going to have another vision of Mother Mary, it's got to be." like before, nighttime, lights out, you know, lying on my back. And he's saying, we're gonna do this breathing session bright and early, 8 a.m., you know, the room full of light, sitting up in chairs. And I'm thinking, oh man, this isn't gonna work. But you know, I, I don't, I'm not making a stink about it. I'm just going along with everybody. So we sit in the chairs, and the breathwork starts, 
And as soon as the stars, Mother Mary, there's a, there was this uh, this do, uh, doorway, you know, without the doors, this double doorway without the doors. Mother Mary sticks her head around the corner. She smiles and she like comes right in front of my face. And she's got Mary Magdalene with her. And they're both wearing these long black capes. I had no idea what the capes were about, but later, and this is an important point for your listeners, Curtis, during your life, when you have these experiences, and they don't have to be this traumatic like I've had, your guardian angels are setting you up because they know down the road you're going to start having doubts. And so they use these earlier experiences, experiences to point you back. You say, you know, you remember that time. So well, that's what happens with these black capes later on. But at the moment, they're in front of me. I have no idea why they're wearing black capes, but they start circling me and wrapping me in the capes and giggling. And then they're just having fun with me. Right? And then Mother Mary says, I want you to lie down on the floor. And I'm thinking, you know, I can't lie on the floor. Everybody's sitting in the chair. But right at that moment, the facilitator said, okay, everybody to the floor. So I laid on the floor. My head was in Mother Mary's lap and Mary Magdalene was hovering above me. And she entered my body. And she healed me of my childhood molestations. I was in my 40s at the time. I was, the first time I remember being molested, I was 12 years old. And I never told anyone, I never talked about it. I was ashamed of it. But once she healed me of my, of my molestations, I was able from that point on to begin talking about them, you know, in interviews, writing about them. And I'm sure your listeners know who, who have been molested that a big part of the healing process is being able to begin talking about it. And so she, Mary Magdalene came out of me and then Mother Mary said, well, we have to go. And they left. <laughs> and you would think I would be very appreciative, which I was, but my ego, ego, E-G-O, is an acronym for etching God out, right? Ego is saying, gee, they didn't even say goodbye. <laughs> and the moment I thought that, Mary Magdalene sticks her head around her and she flies up in front of me and she holds my face in her hands, in both hands, and she just gives me a, a peck on the lips. Not a, it, nothing romantic, just, you know, my good friends, you know, and she says, you silly boy, and she was gone. Well, from that point on, um, I would, I, I developed a relationship with Mary Magdalene over, over the years, just uh, like I've all, I always knew she was there with me. And in, in December of 2012, she woke me up 
at 2 a.m. I usually, you know, to that up until that time, I just always slept right through the night, right? I was a good sound sleeper. She woke me up at 2 a.m., asked me to sit down at my desk with a pad and pen. And she started dictating these quatrain poetry, four, four stanza poems to me. And she's been doing that every night since December of 2012. So I've got thousands of poems. And this was in December and I didn't know, we were thinking about what to call these. So I asked her one night, I said, do you mind if I call you Maggie? And I said, I know Maggie's not a nickname for Magdalena, but besides Melissa, that's one of my favorite names. And she said, sure, you can call me Maggie. So we started calling these poems, Love Notes from Maggie. And that was in December. So every night, you know, she's getting me up and I'm transcribing these poems. And in April, I start having serious doubts. You know, and that's the thing when you, for your listeners, when you start what I call walking your road to Rome, in other words, following your heart, following your bliss, you know, uh, sharing your gift, your purpose with the world, the doubts and fears always come up. And that's what stops most people in their tracks. So here I was, major doubt. So the next morning, I give Maggie, Mary Magdalene, an ultimatum. <laughs> I say, I want proof. I want a burning bush. I want concrete proof that nobody can argue with that these are really coming from you. Well, you know, and I one day went by and nothing happened. The poems kept coming, but no burning bush. A week went by, no burning bush. A month went by, no burning bush. And I kind of just forgot about it because every night, sometimes she'd, trans she'd dictate, my, the highest was 65 poems in one night. That was like two and a half hours nonstop. And so I was just busy transcribing the, this poetry. And then that was April in July, she says, I want you to publish these. So I'm thinking, okay, if I publish these, I better get some, I better get some reviews. So I didn't want to go to my friends because you know I wanted good, honest, critical reviews. So I went to this website that has thousands of people on it. They provide all kinds of different services. And I started going through, you know, I'm thinking, you know, this is going to take forever. Right? So I'm very visual. So I thought, well, I'll just go through the, the photographs of people. And if I see a photo of somebody that, you know, catches my attention, I'll stop. So I start going rapidly through the photos. And I come on this photo of this woman. And I look down and her name is Angelina. And, uh, and she, she was a model, a uh, professional model. So you know, she would uh, model different things. So book reviews was not her, her gig, but Maggie told me the email her. So I sent her an email and all I told her occurs, all I said was I said, I have some poems, Would you, I'll pay you for your time to review them. I won't, 
I'm not going to pay you for a review. If you like them and uh, feel that you can give me a, a, a review, fine. If you don't like them and give me a critical review, that's fine. I'll pay you for your time to read them. And she, she writes back and she says, well, no, that, that's not what I do. <laughs> so, you know, you would think I would just move on. But Maggie said, no, stay with her. So for two or three days, we went back and forth. So finally, like three days later, she writes me an email, like out of exasperation, she says, fine, send me some of the poems, I'll read them. And at that time, when I sent her the poems curse, that's when I told her about Mary Magdalene and me calling her Maggie because we were calling them love notes for Maggie. So the next day, Angelina sends me an email. And it says, Joseph, like capital letters, Joseph, I have to tell you this. It says, you're not going to believe me, so I'll send you proof. But my name is Angelina. That's what everybody knows me as today, because that's what my father wanted to call me. But when I was born, my mother wanted to name me Mary Magdalena. And that's what's on my birth certificate. And she said, when I was growing up in Greece, one day, one of my best friends called me Maggie. And I loved it. So from that point on, only my best friends would call me Maggie. And I said, now, now wait a minute, because maybe in that part of the world, Maggie is a nickname for Magdalena. So I said, wait a minute. Maggie's not a nickname for Magdalena, is it? And she said, no, it's not. Well, one day, one of my best friends just called me Maggie, and I loved it. So she sent me a copy of her passport to prove that her name is Maria Magdalena and her last name. So that was my burning bush. Okay? And then you would think, and this is important for your listeners, because Ego never stops. Ego never stops trying to keep you out of your heart. A few months later, I start having doubts again. Now, not major doubts, not like the first one where I got the burning bush answer. Oh, oh, and to go back on that, I remember uh, when I read that email from Angelina, I, I looked down and I saw her name again, Angelina. Angel, Ina, if you separate it. And I thought, God, this is the angel from Maggie, you know. So anyway, a few months later, uh, a little bit of doubt starts creeping back in. And uh, now when doubt starts coming in, it st still does. But when it starts coming in, I don't have to make an ultimatum, Maggie just dips it in the bud. And that's where she tells me, well, when I go out to the, when I, I go to the VA clinic uh, in Oceanside, anytime I go out there, the, uh, the Mission San Luis Ray, where I had the vision of Mother Mary and Mary Magdalene, it's just a mile down the road. So, I was scheduled uh, for an appointment, and so the night before, Maggie tells me, 
says, uh, when you go after your appointment tomorrow, go to the mission and Mary, Mother Mary is gonna be with you. Well, I've gone to that over the years, I've gone to that mission many times and my routine is I park my car, I walk over to the building where I had the vision and then when I'm walking back to my car, I go into the chapel. I sit in the chapel and I meditate for a while. And then as I leave on my way out, I go into a little alcove where you can light candles and, and uh, say a prayer for someone. I, I go into that alcove just because it's so serene. I don't necessarily light a candle. And then I leave. Well, this time, as I was walking back to the car, I felt this pressure on the back of my upper back. And it just gently pushed me and turned me to go into the chapel, which I always do anyway. But instead of sitting in the chapel, it turned me to the right and took me into the alcove. And every time I've been in that alcove, the side door going out to the cemetery is always closed. This time, it was, it was open. And she took me right into the alcove, turned me, went right out the door into the cemetery. There's 12 or so green benches around the cemetery where people can sit down and, and reflect. She took me right down this path, turned me to the right, took me this one specific bench, had me sit down. So I'm sitting there, I'm just enjoying the, the serenity. And she says, look under the bench. So I look under the bench and there's a plaque. <laughs> she, she goes, get on your knees and read the plaque. <laughs> so, so I get on my knees and I read the plaque. And it says, in memory of Guy Williams, the original Zorro. Well, that answered the reason they were wearing the black capes because they knew a few years later I was going to have some doubts. And this was just one of those instances where they can point you and say, and then Maggie asked me to look up Zorro. And well, I, when I was a kid, Walt Disney's uh, Zorro was a TV, weekly TV program. It was one of my favorite programs. And anyway, I, I looked it up. Uh, and it said of all the seasons, uh, the season, all, all the seasons but one were filmed in Hollywood at, at studios. Their most popular season was filmed, all, each episode was filmed at the Mission San Luis Rey. So that, that's, uh, so what I want to emphasize to your listeners, Curtis, is you're always going to have doubts. The ego, that's the ego's job, is to create doubt and fear so you don't follow your heart. And, and when you start following your heart, you would think after all these experiences I have, I would never have doubt. But, but that's not how ego works. Ego's, always, ego's job is to create doubt. So, but now, whenever that doubt starts to creep in, Maggie just, you know, like I said earlier, nips it in the bud. So, 
Uh, and, you know, I, I know some people say, well, what if I don't believe in angels? Well, that, that's okay. Call it intuition. But drop into your heart. And oftentimes people don't know how to deal with their ego and they fight it all the time. And personally for me, I found that whenever I, I used to fight with ego, ego would always win, right? So I just got to a point where I thought one day, okay, I'm just gonna be, I'm gonna make friends with ego. And the way I do that is now when I notice ego taking charge, I just say, thank you for reminding me to go back into my heart. And that's how I deal with ego now. It's just a friend to me. So, you know, I just use ego to keep me in my heart. Right? And if you, but two Curtis, I believe that there are billions of people on the planet who have their own personal angel stories, but they're intimidated to talk about them for fear of being ridiculed or labeled, you know, whatever. But uh, my most popular book, The Power of Angels, it, I describe some of my angel stories in there to encourage people to start talking about their angel experiences. And, you know, if you don't feel comfortable, then just share them with people that you feel safe with, you know, but start talking about them. Um, and, or if you don't, if you can't remember any, I think everybody has them, but if you can't remember any, then start reading other people's experiences and just start, you know, at least opening your mind that angels, maybe they do exist if you just don't believe in them. And uh, because one time a host asked me, well, well, why you? Why did Mary Magdalene come to you? or choose you and nobody had ever asked that to me before and so it kind of caught me off guard but I just thought quickly and I thought well I don't think she chose me I just think I was receptive you know I was receptive I just had an open heart and so she she used it you know to convey her poetry and her poetry, the second part of the book, her poetry just helps people deal with the everyday issues of living, right? Stress, you know, uh, you know, whatever, you know, just the things that we as human beings go through. Um, and so I like to call it the, what the book talks about, I like to call it the Trinity, the Trinity of creating a life full of meaning, significance, joy, love, and success. The Trinity, the first part of the Trinity being uh, coming out of what I call your angel closet, right? So looking back on your life, you know, connecting the dots and seeing where angels uh, inter intervened in your life and begin sharing those stories safely with people you can trust. And then as you do that, uh, that sets up the second part of the Trinity, which is discovering what your gift is, what your purpose is in life. 
And as you learn what that is, then that uh, allows you to complete the Trinity with the third leg of the Trinity by fearlessly sharing your gift with the world. And as you do so, dealing with the doubts and fears. And that's where the poetry comes in. It really helps people deal with the doubts and fears. Well, we got about 20 minutes left. So let me just ask you. Sure. Do you feel like your angels protected you in the Vietnam War? How did you survive the war? Well, this is this is what happened. Yeah, that's a great question because I have a very, very good story around that. In 1968, I was in my first year of college. I was very shy. I didn't go out to make friends. I was an anthropology major. And I met this woman from Mexico. I, I went to a college right close to the border. So uh, a lot of the kids from Mexico would come up every day and go attend classes, then go home, back home to Mexico uh, in the evening. And I met this lady and her name was Migdalia. Now, <laughs> I had taken three years of high school Spanish. I had a lot of Hispanic friends. I had never heard the name Migdalia. That was a rare name. In addition to that, she was beautiful. She had this long, straight black hair that went down past her buttocks that looked like silk. I swear, Chris, it looked like silk. <laughs> and she had this beautiful nose. I mean, if she were to walk into a room full of people, people would just stop and look at her. That's how beautiful she was. Now, that's important uh, uh, as we get along in the story. But she also was, had a beautiful heart. And she befriended me. And she was from a very well-to-do family in Mexico. And she was an art major. I was an anthropology major. So we didn't have any classes. But anytime, if we saw each other between classes, uh, we would always spend time together. And she carpooled over every day with um, four of her friends. And when I, well, my dad had kicked me out of the house. So I was living in a tent in the backyard of a friend's home. And one of my friends wanted to, it was the height of the Vietnam War. They started drafting college students. And I thought, you know, I'm not gonna be a grunt in the rice paddies. Uh, so my friend wanted to join and go and go go in on this buddy system, right? And so I so I decided uh, to join the army, and I didn't tell Magdalia. I thought I was gonna. I thought I had time to tell it, but with me getting kicked out of the house and everything, it just uh, I never told her. But in the last day I saw her, I had just gotten some books out of the trunk of my car, and I was walking back walking across the parking lot to my class. And the car she carpooled in had just pulled out and was heading away from me and she didn't see me. But her girlfriend, one of her girlfriends saw me and she tapped Magdalia on the arm and whispered something to her. And Magdalia turned completely around in the back seat. She was in the middle, uh, three girls in the back seat. She turned completely around and with this ear-to-ear -ear smile, waved goodbye to me. 
she thought she was waving goodbye for the weekend. Well, I never saw her again because things just got out of control and I went into the army. Well, my, uh, you know, I took training. So in 19, May of 1969, I was sent to Vietnam. And when I get there, everybody knows you're new because you're clean, right? <laughs> and your, your uniform is green, right? It's not faded out, you know? And so all the, I had to wait in Saigon, the capital of South Vietnam for my paperwork before I could get to my duty station. So everybody was asking me, all the Vietnamese were asking me, oh, where are you going? I said, well, I'm going to play coup. <laughs> and I swear, Curtis, every person I said that to, they almost had a fit. They said, no, that's the worst place you can go. That's the most dangerous place in South Vietnam. And I'm thinking, well, I, I don't have anything to say about this, right? So thanks a lot, you know? So anyway, I get to play coup. And I didn't know at the time, I learned later, but a month before I got to play coup, you know, they hired the local people to work on the camp, in the camp. And then the Viet Cong was, they had some spies because they attack the camp. And when the alert goes off, you have, even like it's two in the morning, you have to get up, get all your gear on and get your weapon, run out of the, uh, the hooches and run down to the bunkers. Well, they knew that. And the pathway where everybody had to run, they just walked those mortar rounds right down that pathway. And a bunch of guys were killed, a bunch of guys were wounded. Well, when I get there, from May 1969 to May of 1970, we are never hit. Now, two or three times a week, the airbase next to us was getting mortared. But we never took any direct rounds. And in fact, it became so complacent that it became an irritant to us because the alert, because when they got hit next to us, we had to go on alert. Now it started, you know, we started getting angry about it. Well, they're not hitting us. <laughs> and it got to the point where we would walk down to the bunkers. I mean, that's, that's dangerous, right? Uh, but for the whole year I was there, we never took direct hits. Well, it's time for me to leave the country. So I have to fly down to Saigon, wait for my paperwork. When I'm down in Saigon, I get a phone call. The unit I worked in took a direct hit. And three of my friends I worked side by side with were killed. But for the whole year I was there, nothing. So now this is important, right? So this is 1970, right? 6970. I haven't seen McDalia since then. In fact, I kind of forgot about her. But I mean, she's not easy to forget because of her name and how pretty she was. But you know, I didn't I didn't think about her, you know, for decades. Well, last year I was having some doubts. And Maggie says, look up Migdalia. And I'm thinking, Migdalia? I, mean, I, haven't, I haven't thought about Migdalia in decades. Just look up Migdalia. So I look her, 
the meaning, the meaning of her name, Allegra. And it says flower. So I'm thinking, okay, yeah, she was like a flower. That makes sense. But what does that have to do with anything? And so the next morning, Maggie says, look at Megalia. I said, well, I looked her up. It means flowers. You know, you can just see her rolling her eyes. You know, just look her name up again and use a different source. So I use a different source and it says Magdalia, derivative of Magdalena. And Maggie told me that Magdalia was an earth angel. And when she turned around that day and smiled at you, you didn't know it. But she was telling you you were going to be okay in Vietnam. I, I still get emotional uh, about it when I, when I tell it, you know. Yeah, that's an amazing story there. Yeah, and, and but what I want to emphasize to your listeners is, you know, um, your angels, your guardian angels will set these things up because they know later on, when you get serious about this, uh, you're going to start, ego's going to come in because when you start getting serious about following your heart, you know, ego wraps things up. And so they have these uh, instances to take you back on and say, you remember that? Okay, I was with you then. And, you know, your, your guardian angels will use people in physical form acting as earth angels to help them protect you and guide you along. Let's, so yeah, uh, that, was, that, that was a great question because that's a great story. <laughs> absolutely. Let's uh, go ahead and wrap this story. up. Yeah. Oh yeah, great story. Let's go ahead and wrap this up by giving out your contact information. How can people purchase your book if you're on any social media, any websites? Yeah, my website is uh, jmmlove.com. J for Joseph, MM for Mary Magdalene love because that's her universal message only love is real so jmmlove.com uh, from the website you can connect to my to my um, youtube channel uh, and my uh, ig channel and my books on amazon uh, my most popular book is the power the power of angels now if you if you just you if you don't go through the website you just go to amazon then you have to put in the Power of Angels Volume Three. You got to put in Volume Three, because if you don't, all kinds of books on angels come up. But if you put the Power of Angels Volume Three, then my book comes right up, and it's published under my name Joseph. Um, and uh, so that's uh, yeah. And somebody, but I know it can be hard to start sharing angel stories. Uh, because of the intimidation factor. So if people feel safe with me, uh, they can email me at joseph at jmmlove.com and share their stories with me. And I'll, you know, I'll keep them confidential, of course. And, um, but uh, they can use me as, as a safe uh, conduit to at least start doing that, coming out of their angel closet and start creating a life full of meaning significance, joy, love, and success. I mean, that's possible for everybody. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to invite you to follow, rate, review, share this episode to as many people as possible. 
After listening, maybe somebody out there has an angel story to share. Contact Joseph and also Android listeners. Go to the Google Play Store and download the Living the Dream with Curveball podcast app. Joseph, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Curtis. Thank you for doing what you're doing. For more information on the Living the Dream podcast, visit www.djcurveball.com. Until next time, stay focused on living the dream. Dream.